You're watching The Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. For decades, we court professionals have committed ourselves to the practice of diversity and inclusion. We make this commitment so as to earn the public's trust and confidence in America's courts. This dedication is ongoing. The work still continues. The goals of diversity and inclusion affirm our pledge to fairness, equity, impartiality, trust, and accountability. They also enhance decision-making, innovation, resiliency, responsiveness, employee engagement, and delivery of services. Courts are constantly confronted by the demand for more access, the desire for more equality, and the erosion of the very public trust and confidence that we have pledged to earn. What can we do to strengthen our core values? What can we do to use diversity and inclusion as a way to solve today's problems? And what do we see on the horizon for courts as they struggle to address diversity and inclusion on a daily basis? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leader's Advantage podcast series. This is the second of a two-part discussion on courts and their commitment to diversity and inclusion. I'm joined today by my co-host, Zanelle Brown, Executive Court Administrator for the Third Circuit Court in Detroit, Michigan. Our panelists today include Marcia M. Anderson, recently retired as Clerk of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Western District of Wisconsin. Hector Gonzalez is the Court Executive Officer for the Superior Court in Tuolumne County, California. Norman Meyer, retired after serving 38 years as the court administrator in both federal and state systems. Most recently, he was the clerk of the United States Bankruptcy Court in the District of New Mexico. And Jose Octavio Guion, retired after serving for 42 years as the court executive officer and jury commissioner in the superior courts of Sonoma, Napa, Riverside, and Imperial Counties, California. Thanks to all of you for joining today's video podcast. We all know how important the support of allies are. Diversity and inclusion is heavily reliant on the support of allies, allies who may not directly benefit from the specific diversity and inclusion strategies. Hector, what is the current support level of your allies? What has been effective in recruiting allies? And what improvements or further developments are you doing in this area? Yeah, I would define allies uh, in two ways. I would, would define them to be uh, formal and informal. Uh, the formal allies are what we've been talking about in terms of uh, community-based organizations, fellow justice partner agencies, uh, other governmental entities like the county, uh, town, municipality, uh, chambers of commerce. You know, those are all the formals that uh, often I turn to uh, for a number of things, particularly for sources of uh, recruitment to promote uh, the diversity of the uh, recruitment process. And I also recruit for jurors through, through those uh, allies. Uh, the ones I probably would focus on a little more are the informal allies that may, not, may be a little more hidden. Uh, one of the things I do, and, and I think we all do, if we have a uh, uh, communities where there is a congregation of particular uh, groups and people of color. And I've lived in communities where, you know, we know where all the Mexicans live, okay? Well, I go there and I talk to people and I don't even tell them who I am or what, or what I do. 
And I just, uh, you know, I dress, if I dress up, and Jose knows this, if we wear a tie and suit, I can walk by someone, and then the next day, if I come in with a jeans and a T-shirt, they won't recognize me the day <laughs> that they, okay? Because the fact that I no longer have a tie and suit on made such a substantial change. It's almost like Clark, uh, Clark Kent putting glasses on, you know? Take the glasses off, he's Superman. Put the glasses on, he's Clark Kent. Uh, never ceases to amaze me, and, and that is not only with people who are, you know, majority white Anglo-Saxon, even among my own community, I've seen that, that they look at me differently when I have the suit on versus when I have the jeans and the t-shirt on. So I put the t jeans and t-shirt on, and I go find my informal allies. I find the people that tell me, hey, you know, uh, what's, have you ever been to court? What's, what, what, <laughs> how were you treated there? You know, because I got to go to court too, you know, and then I get the, you know, a lot of that information has to be taken with a, I wouldn't say a grain, I'd say a boulder of salt, but it is a very good source of informal ally and assistance and information that I think is, uh, takes a lot of work. Uh, but it's a good way to, uh, one of the things I do with that is I, I usually find good Mexican food or good Cajun <laughs> cookie. I love my, I love my, I, I've been to Louisiana and New Orleans so many times, I'm, I am a Cajun junkie. And uh, so I like I like I like good Southern cooking. So I hit I hit everything. You know, the one last thing I would mention, though, is I've also had the experience of being the ally before I became a court administrator. Uh, I was an attorney, uh, a private attorney who represented mostly farm workers and uh, low income Hispanics. And I was in a community where there was a propensity of a lot of crime by young Latino males. It was a farm worker community. And uh, I was invited to a meeting uh, with uh, the mayor and the local chief of police and all the, you know, a bunch of other big wigs in this community. And it was actually in the central Washington where I started practice of the law. At, it was, the community was called Wenatchee, Washington. It's in the, uh, it's in the center of Washington State, in the Cascade Mountains. It's one. It is the uh, Apple Capital of America. Was our official uh, Chamber of Commerce title. Uh, sorry, uh, anywhere you, you don't grow apples in Wisconsin, or <laughs> <laughs> not the good ones. <laughs> so they they were they were having a community meeting about why was there so much crime uh, among young Latino males, and. Uh, and they, they saw this as being like a scourge. And, you know, I having represented many of them came to one simple conclusion. It was a community of men. This was a, a migrant farm worker community where the, where the guys were coming in and working and they didn't bring their families. And they didn't have uh, the social network, the social bond that kept them, I think, out of trouble. And I told that to uh, one of the police chief and he didn't get it. He said, well, they should still behave themselves. And then I told them, because I come from a military family, remember we're all military, right? And I told him, I, were you in the military, sir? And he said, sure was. Do you know how your men are when they're, when they're stationed overseas? Have you seen some of those bases over in the Philippines or, or over in Okinawa and how our, our service members acts out there, particularly if it's just a large group of men and they have no, no other family connections to, to modify their behavior, how do they behave? And he said, they behave pretty poorly. 
there's a lot of a lot of MP a lot of MP action going on. And I said, well, that's what you have here. You have a large group of men far away from their homes, far away from their families. They have no social connections to keep their behavior under control. They just go crazy. What you need to do is give them something to focus on. And I told you it's real simple. When I ever go visit people's houses, all they want to talk about is soccer and who, what Mexican club is playing what other Mexican club and is los tres, los, los tres van a ganar contra Colombia, you know. And Jose knows the, the Mets. Well, you, I'm sorry, you, no eres mexicano, hombre. Los tres are the Mexican national team, the tricolors, because of the three colors of the Mexican flag. Okay. And so I told them, if you build a soccer field and let them play, then you're going to give, you know, you're going to give them something else to do. And it only took, you know, I told them, just get a little piece of park, build maybe two or three soccer fields and have them open weekends and after work hours, you're going to see a big drop in the misbehavior that you normally see with guys just sitting around and drinking beers when they're in their 20s and 30s. And they actually did it, and they actually got a reduction in crime. Now, it hurt me as a private attorney. I wasn't getting all the customers, all my, <laughs> my clients. So I had to do a little more family law and civil law. But on the, that was, to me, is I, the experience of being on the other end as an ally of, 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 you know, mm -hmm. of the system has helped me be now, I'm not fighting the man, I am the man, in terms of that old saying, you know. So... That, uh, that to me is, 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 I think, the value of allies. I've seen it in both ways. Jose, this question's for you. A sub-strategy of proximity, which is defined as having workers with different perspectives or social identities work closely together, can encourage some employees to make a choice. If exclusion is not within that organization's culture, then some employees should decide to leave on their own accord. Isn't this a subtle form of discrimination? Uh, well, I, I see this as a case for courageous and credible leadership, uh, perhaps more to do with exclusion, the type of culture that is created. And I think a courageous uh, leader has to uh, talk frequently and be anchored on uh, the institutional values, you know, that they can frequently talk about that among their staff and in a practical way indicate why, why they're important. And so that, uh, you know, the courageous leader also needs to have a, a uh, be able to lean into discomfort in, in those conflicts that will exist because you're, we're human and we have biases. And so being able to have the courage to have the elephant in the room to talk about it in a safe and, and supportive environment is key uh, in holding people accountable and, you know, making sure that people are celebrated, encouraged to live up to the ideals. Ultimately, you know, we want the employee that if they choose to leave, that it be based on a conscious and free decision that the values of the organization are not in alignment with their own. That we don't want is that they want to leave because the place is not respectful of their values or that they are discriminating 
the nasals. Uh, to me, this is more about, you know, does the environment have the leadership, courageous leaders, you know, that support that kind of discussion? Because it's difficult, it's difficult. And understanding why, is people fearful of the change? Um, uh, so I think, you know, values and ethics matter. They have to be part of what is spoken every day and that you walk the talk, that you're credible in your actions, that you not say something, but, you know, the, your actions are differently. So I see this as part of leadership and how you inculcate and, and create a, a culture where you know those boundaries and, and do it in a, in a gentle, compassionate, but courageous way. Very powerful statement on leadership. Go ahead, Norman. Uh, heck, uh, Jose, you just hit on you know values and accountability, and I, I, those two things that really struck a chord with me. And and yeah, I, you know, inculcating your organization with the values of the organization and what your personal values are as a leader is so crucial. And 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 one thing that I think that it needs to be carried out. Um, in uh, an area of strategic planning, that if you're if you're making strategic plans for the future uh, in any area of the court, you know whether it's IT or public service or space and facilities or whatever it may be, that you are including and honoring uh, diversity and inclusion practices inside your strategic planning. It isn't just an adjunct over there uh, in its own topic that you imbue all of your actions, uh, all of your planning um, and your leadership actions have to honor uh, diversity and inclusion. And then if you do that, uh, the whole accountability thing, yeah, if an, if an employee isn't willing to uh, be part and parcel of that, if they're not willing to buy into what your the organization is about, yeah, uh, holding them accountable for what your values are is important because you, if you don't, then you're just tolerating and completely undercutting uh, what you're trying to accomplish. And so I've done a lot of work in teaching and research on you know, performance appraisals and such, and, and <laughs> there's a lot of accountability included in, in that. Um, so you, how you measure how somebody is doing needs to also honor diversity, inclusion, and whether or not that employee is also uh, adhering to the values of the organization. Hector, what diversity and inclusion strategies are being developed in your court and implemented at this time? Has the focus changed since COVID-19? And has the recent wave of social justice protests and demonstrations impacted those? We're in a part of California that has gotten very, probably very little impact uh, from COVID. We, as recently as well, like a couple of months ago, had less than like 10 cases in the entire county. Uh, we've significantly increased over the last two months. So in terms of the impact of what we do for diversity inclusion, COVID hasn't had as much impact here. I mean, other than we do things more by a remote presence for meetings and uh, in terms of what we do with our court customers uh, and social distancing and other protective measures. Uh, what I do see though, more of an impact is the, uh, I think, the social unrest and protest uh, that we, I, I believe, causes some division between uh, between our staff in terms of generational divisions. 
uh, the older versus the younger staff. Uh, and in particular, I think one of my strategies has always been that diversity and inclusion uh, also includes age. Uh, and that's, and I don't mean just in terms of the age discrimination in terms of the older worker, but I also have seen that in the reverse in terms of a, a very uh, strong, I think, hesitation bias against hiring younger employees, particularly women, because they're going to get married and they're going to have babies. And, you know, we should get someone who's already had her family and isn't, you know, going to disappear on us as soon as she gets a boyfriend. And, uh, yes, I've, I've had, I've had court managers and supervisors tell me that. And I say, I go, la, 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 la. <laughs> you do not want to hear that. I'm a former, you know, uh, employment law discrimination attorney. You were, you were making my case if I was going to sue us. <laughs> uh, and so in terms of the, 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 the social protests and demonstrations have bringing out this distinction in ages. And it also has an impact, I think, in some communities because your younger workers are going to be people of color. And I worked in, in a community where most of the people under 30 were Latino. That was in uh, Mono County, Mammoth Lakes. Everyone over 30 was predominantly white. So this ageism, uh, when you have this uh, this division created by you know social unrest, it, it raises its head. And in my you know my strategy, as I said, is 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 I've always tried to promote as part of the diversity and inclusion uh, those who are younger, those who are in their 20s and 30s, because I do believe if that's another aspect of diversity that's often missed is the generational experience. Uh, yes. And I know I fight a big fight because I often have my, you know, my middle managers and my upper management staff who are usually going to be in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who have little trust or little regard for persons in that age group for any number of reasons uh, in, in a professional setting. So it's, in my mind, though, it's one of the most important aspects uh, of diversity and inclusion that gets overlooked. And you're right, we do have to pay attention to it because in a few years, they're going to be the majority in the workforce, definitely. Yeah. Marsha, what about you? How's it going over there in Wisconsin? Well, um, I live just outside our, our the state capital, which is Madison. Um, so I'm just barely outside the city limits. Um, we did have some unrest downtown um, and the federal courthouse is located right near, where, less than a block. I'd say a block and a half from where some of the um, unrest occurred. Um, and um, there have been some, according to my successor in, in my position, there have been some protests because some of the um, um, protesters were identified via cameras and other means. And they decided, the US attorney decided to um, file federal charges. So some of those individuals ended up getting arraigned, obviously, in the, in the district court, um, in the same building where the bankruptcy court is. And so there were there were protests. They were peaceful, um, um, but I think, you know, being being as I think a lot of of court are in center of cities or in the areas where these kinds of things occur, or they have a populations that are that are changing. The demographics are changing. I think this is a moment that we need to seize. I think we need to look at policies that we have in our court systems that may have a disparate impact 
on different groups of people. I mean, one thing that comes to mind um, was some of the policies in terms of fines and penalties that were assessed um, in Ferguson on the African-American population. Um, they could not afford to, to pay those fines that kept rolling up and increasing. And so then you'd have a bench warrant issued for someone's arrest. And then at some point, someone's now got a, 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 something on a, a record of some sort. So I think we need to take a look at some of our policies and find out, similar to what Norm was talking about when you're hiring people, what's the reason for this policy? Is it really there to deter um, people from speeding or from double parking um, or from um, you know, having code violations on their home? Um, and find out whether or not, again, that the impact is, is disproportionately on certain people and puts them in a position where they can never dig out of that hole. Um, and because that also creates a perception of the courts, I think, in certain communities as being out to get them, as mm -hmm. being unfriendly, being hostile, um, and making you know, their lives in general miserable and they're not, when they're not good to begin with. So I just think this is a time for us to take a look at some of those policies and judges can be involved in that as well. Because again, you know, they're the ones, you know, conferring sentences on people. Um, and they maybe need to think, what impact will this have? Is this really going to be a deterrent? Or is this going to put this, send this person off the rails and, you know, send them on a path where their life is never going to get better. And again, they're going to harbor a lot of resentment towards the court system. Marsha, we're going to go back to something you mentioned earlier. It's about changing the staffing model and hiring approaches to provide opportunities to wider groups of potential employees. You mentioned the conversion to telework, especially for rural communities. What's holding courts back? Why aren't we doing this? And I think it's just about comfort. Um, I think with the, the social justice protests now, maybe people will start to do some more, be more introspective. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that you know more and more citizens are embracing technology. They find it convenient. They don't have to make the trip to the courthouse to do to pay something off or to to file something. Um, and I think we need to revisit our position descriptions um, because they may have been heavily weighted towards um, foot traffic that, in some places, has decreased significantly. I know it it did at our court here in Madison. Um, and look at workflow as well. Um, to try to find ways to provide services that are efficient, because that's our job. We should be trying to find ways to be more efficient and responsive to the people that we serve. And if people are now getting more comfortable with ordering their groceries online, um, <laughs> they're more comfortable. I mean, I have friends who are now like, I don't know why I ever go to the grocery store. Why did I go to the grocery store in the first place? They love, they love being able to order the groceries and get there and pick them up and put them in their car. Um, and so there's just, all kinds of um, things that we're doing now with technology as a consequence of this pandemic, um, telehealth, people are no longer going, making trips into doctor's offices. Um, so again, how do we look at our staffing model? How do we look at our workflows and the way we provide service to our customers, our fellow citizens, um, that makes their lives easier, that provides them still with the, with the, with the contact and the service that they need, you can still I mean, it's it's amazing the things that we can do now. Um, shop, as I said, entertain ourselves online, learn new things, um, visit with family members. As people have told me, there have been so many Zoom um, um, gatherings with family members now that they 
they're thinking, why do we keep having those, you know, annual um, big gatherings when we could all gather every weekend and do something together? So I think we have to look at, at our models, look at our way we do business, think outside the box, embrace the technology, hire younger people who may ask those kinds of questions, or they're the ones who can help us figure out how to do this more efficiently. For us old heads who are still trying to figure out, like my husband, how to use his Zoom camera. So um, um, we, we have to give them the, the space and the freedom just to make suggestions to us for these kinds of things. And I'm, I'm a big proponent, and I was when I was a clerk, of having staff members work on a task force. Because as I would tell them, I am not the smartest person in this court. You collectively, we collectively are. So I would have them volunteer for a task force. When we went from paper to um, online filing, they're the ones who came up with the workflow because they do the work every day. And I wasn't going to try and figure it out. And they came up with some really interesting ways to make their work more efficient. So again, trust your staff, trust your newer and younger employees, and you know, let them help us be better. Awesome. Jose. You know, it, it's uh, the pandemic uh, really, uh, you know, kind of pushed us into this, this disruptive world. You know, we didn't have a choice. We didn't have a warning uh, to, to, to that extreme change. Uh, you know, I just um, got over uh, burying my mother who, um, you know, the entire family was stroke, uh, struck by uh, COVID. And uh, little things that we take for granted, like uh, funerals, uh, you know, coming together as humans and, and mourning. Uh, you know, this COVID, the pandemic has changed those, those, um, those relationships, those processes. And so it's a matter of seizing those opportunities. You know, the world has changed as we know it. And most likely, it won't go back to the way it used to be. And so I agree with Marsha that, you know, how do we harness and seize the opportunity? But we also have to think holistically about, you know, other unintended consequences, you know, sort of like, okay, so what about security? And how about cybercrime? And are those computers, uh, you know, secure? Um, what are the protocols for making sure that you know uh, there's security maintained in our records? You know, we that is at the core of what we do. You know, to produce the records. Um, you know, this notion that you know we try to inculcate the sense of teamwork, this this sense of community within the court. How do we maintain that? And how do we find a new way to a substitute, if you will, to, to create this, this, this need that is part of the human condition of wanting to be uh, with proximity, with physical connection? You know, the notion that, you know, uh, justice starts with a smile at the counter. Well, you know, if you're wearing a mask, it's pretty hard to, to show your smile. You know, this social distancing and, and, and the ethical issues, you know, and the access to them, you know, and in California, for instance, you know, uh, you know, in a labor relations, in an organized labor uh, environment, you know, there are some, some labor relations issues that you have to go through it. You know, so access, meaningful access, opportunity, uh, 
we have to seize those opportunities because you know we can't go back to the way it used to be. But we also need to go beyond that and say holistically, what substitutes do we have for team building, for security, for access, meaningful access, for inclusion, uh, and not you know substituting one level of inequity for others. You know, creating others. Uh, so I agree with Marsha that this is a golden opportunity to seize opportunities that you know we didn't have before. You know, and technology presents a really good way to do that. And at the same time, you know, we need to think about all the other components uh, that we probably have not uh, fully fully comprehended yet. There's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Zanel, I'd like to add uh, uh, something a little bit more. Um, uh, first of all, just to say that what Marcia and Jose just said was just really profound, and I, I, and I appreciate that, that I think we are on the cusp of, I don't know what the right term is, of a sea change, uh, uh, a turning point in history, because we have the confluence of two major uh, movements. Uh, one is uh, the response to the COVID pandemic and, and the incredible effect it's having on uh, the social fabric of the world and the economy of the world. And, and the courts are caught up in it and we're responding to it in many creative ways. Um, uh, and, and, and as I think the Chief Justice of, 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 of uh, the Michigan Supreme Court has been quoted many times as saying, this is a tremendous opportunity mm-hmm. for the courts to get off our butts and get into the 21st century and leave the 19th century behind. Uh, and, and it is time for us to shed uh, the old ways of doing things, old ways of thinking, embrace the new reality and move forward. And at the same time as all of that's going on, we have a tremendous movement and pressure and uh, to respond uh, and, and, and deal with racial injustice and systemic racism um, uh, in society. And, and, and that's the protest that I think, you know, that, that we've mentioned here already. Um, and here in Albuquerque, we've had some very big protests and uh, even some violence with a shooting um, and with involving a right-wing militia group as well as the counter-protesters. Um, uh, uh, and so uh, it, it's all over the country and it's all over the world. I communicate a lot with people internationally because of the network of people I've developed over the years. And it is profound how uh, this has sparked, uh, the, the events in the United States have sparked uh, similar protests and similar cries for justice in many, many other countries. And so uh, to get back to what, where I started is we are on the cusp of a huge change in the world around us and the courts are starting already responded and 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 are going to respond a lot more and uh, i almost wish i was 30 years younger and uh, working in the trenches because this is just so exciting uh, as a court leader to say wow i can be part of this and i can make things happen and so here we are you know but I'm, I'm doing my bit to try to uh, move the ball down the field on this one. So uh, that's the challenge to our current court leaders and future court leaders is to seize the moment, seize the moment. 
I echo what all of you have said. It's definitely the moment for real change right now. It's an opportunity for courts. That is a great segue to our last question as we close out this episode. What do you see on the horizon as courts address the issue of diversity and inclusion? Jose? You know, um, I'm very hopeful that, um, you know, the, the, the current existential challenges um, will also provide new and better solutions uh, uh, to existing problems. Um, and uh, I believe that it, it has to start with, with, with an individual, you know, the introspection uh, and the reaffirmation of what are the core values, you know, that, that we believe in. And, and, and uh, you know, this could be at the, at the fundamental level of how do we define our own golden rule individually? And how do we want to treat others? And understanding that, you know, uh, that, that that's the commonality is that we have to transcend beyond the labels, the rhetoric, the divisiveness that we're living through. That, that that is really undermining this whole notion that you know it's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to have different perspectives. But the bottom line is that you know we are all humans. That the commonality of that and the treatment for that. I think it, it, it's critical for us to, to, to focus on. You know, I think of, of, of this as, as a shift in what defines our Western society of, you know, individualism, you know, individual rights, individual freedoms, and moving to a more communal perspective that by caring of others, you know, we're actually caring about ourselves. I like Gandhi's uh, uh, message and quote that said, you know, to truly find yourself, you have to lose yourself in the service of others. You know, the biggest challenge for me is, is really managing the vast amount of information. We're bombarded with this information. And, and what I'm finding is that probably what we need is less information more mindfulness, more introspection, uh, and to, to recognize that, you know, there's more that pulls us together. Uh, you know, when we start thinking about others in the sense of humanity, you know, the people, and research has been done on this, that, you know, the more we think about others in the sense of human, you know, what kind of vegetables do you, do you like? If I can think about that, about you, I just elevated you to my level of being human. And so I am hopeful. Um, you know, I think of diversity and inclusion as uh, I, I term it idea, which is a process of inclusion being the way we're going to go about including others. Diversity is the outcome by doing that. But then we want to go beyond diversity, not just being at the party, not just being at the table, but actually having meaningful equity. You know, the outcomes are not dependent upon some predetermined characteristic. And A, for awareness. Awareness meaning that we have to be introspective, we have to be mindful that our actions, what we say, think, and do, do matter. 
and that they do reverberate in organizations and relationships. So I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that the next generation uh, will learn from, from the mistakes we've made and, and uh, make it a more inclusive and more fair and equitable world. Marcia, what do you see on the horizon? Um, you know, I was just sitting here thinking that, you know, the courts are the one thing, at least the United States courts, are mentioned specifically in, in the Constitution. But I think we're, we're part of something very special and important in this country. And whether you're a state court or a federal court, um, for many people, their only contact with the justice system or some kind of part of the justice system is when they come into a clerk's office. <laughs> Or, or, and, and they may never ever appear in front of a judge, but they're going to be interacting with our staff. And so I think that that gives us a responsibility to look like America, to provide um, an example of people working together with different backgrounds and religions and beliefs and cultures that can work together to help administer justice. Um, I would personally like to see the bench be more diverse, but you know, you take your you take one step at a time. Um, but I think you know, having our offices um, diverse, welcoming, inclusive, um, provides an example. It leads the way. In the military, we always talk about leading the way, um, and I think this is an important place where we could lead the way and and set an example. And also, I think be part of the discussion as we talk about things like bail. As we talk about, you know, rates of incarceration for certain crimes for certain groups, um, I think we're opening up those discussions and we're going to be part of them. So we need to be ready. Norman, what is your take? Well, I kind of shot my wad on the last question, but uh, <laughs> frankly, I mean, I just see there's just tremendous opportunity to do the right thing and to uphold uh the, the the core purposes and responsibilities of the courts and you know jose has been hammered on that one today uh uh you know our what our core values are and, and uh you know and hector and marcia have, have touched on it as well um i, I sort of like to just pass on a personal story um my grandfather was elected to the city council of mankato minnesota in 1914 and when he was elected he said the following phrase, I have accepted a public trust and I will keep the faith. And he passed that down to my father who had a tremendous career and trying to live up to that standard. I have accepted a public trust and I will keep the faith. And if you were to talk to the staff in the courts that I worked in, I use that phrase a lot, um, that I we are here to serve the public and, and uh, uphold the faith they have in the third branch of government to be fair, to be just, to, to, have, to, to uphold equality, and to have diversity and inclusiveness be inside of every act that we do. And we are being watched. I mean, you talk about walking the talk. Everything you do, people are watching. And so you need to, my message is to the people in the courts uh, now and in the future is, seize this opportunity, seize these, the, what's going on today, and just make it better than ever it was and, and make sure the public maintains faith in us to do the right thing. Hector, what are your thoughts? I 
kind of see a, a unique perspective because uh, not that long ago, I was an adjunct professor teaching political science and history at our local community college. And uh, I had to give it up because uh, <laughs> the courts uh, needed um, all my time, uh, particularly now with uh, all the major projects. But what I saw was what I think I see in, in the court setting is we're having a generational shift coming. Uh, our baby boomer leadership are uh, both at the middle management and the upper management. I mean, that's us, except for you, Marsha. You look pretty, you, you, you look like you're Gen X and not baby boomer. Uh, but the point that I'm making is that we're going to have diversity and inclusion, I think, occur through what I would call a natural progression. Uh, but whether the values, the core values, like Jose points out, flow with that is what I'm concerned about. Because unfortunately, we are seeing a lot of young people in different parts of the country that for whatever reason are holding fast to racist, biased points of view. And, uh, it's kind of like a counter to what you would expect because I've had a lot of instances where we, I taught my students the generational shifts in perspectives about major social issues. A good example is the attitude towards homosexuality. As little as you know, 20 years ago, the majority of Americans considered it to be uh, something amoral and in many places still criminally wrong. Well, that shift just recently has gone completely in the opposite direction. Obviously, the majority of Americans now have no problem with, uh, with homosexuality and even with same-sex marriage and the recognition of, of rights for the LGBTQ community. Uh, but that doesn't mean all everyone has that core value. It just means that there, the, the mass of our, uh, I guess, of our generation is finally making that shift and I think that's going to happen in our courts um, in terms of our, our new leadership and our new workforce is, is going to be uh, by the weight of the change in population going to be diverse in itself. Uh, whether that leads to greater inclusion is the point, because remember, we do know the difference between, you know, as we were saying, you can be, you can be invited to the dance. Uh, you, and you're, you're in there, but are you going to be able to dance? Are you, are you going to be a wallflower just sitting, standing by the table looking at everybody else get all the opportunities to dance? And I'm hoping and counting on what we've been able to do will help that, uh, as Norman said and Jose, the next generation uh, take the advantages that they're going to have in the greater natural diversity that's going to occur and make sure that the inclusion comes with that. That to me is the, is the future ch uh, challenge uh, that uh, I wish I was around too, uh, Norman, another 30 years. Uh, and, 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 and that retirement would sure be sweet if I could do that. Zanel, what do you see on the horizon for courts? Pay close attention to that public trust and confidence that we're supposed to build in that excellence and service. Right now, we're seeing that courts do not have to operate the way that they have in the past due to the pandemic. We are realizing that all pieces don't have to be where people are traipsing down to the court, paying for parking, having a face-to-face -face interaction. So what can we do differently? 
also you have to be careful to make sure that is anybody being left out of that process even right now. So I see that courts are going to be more in tune to what's going on in their environment, paying closer attention to the technology, with employee engagement, having the conversations that really ensure that employees feel welcome in the space because once they feel welcome, they can make sure that the public feels welcome. So I, I, I really think there's going to be a lot of progress as far as diversity and inclusion goes if people are committed. My thanks to Marcia, Jose, Norman, and Hector today for sharing their thoughts on diversity and inclusion. My thanks also to my excellent co-host, Zanelle Brown. And of course, my thanks to all you court professionals out there watching this episode. Despite all the challenges you face, you keep the courts running. All of us thank you. Do you have a question or comment about this month's episode? Do you have an example of diversity or inclusion within your court that needs to be shared? Email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. We'll try to include your comment on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This episode appears in both a video and audio format on the NACOM CLA podcast landing page and on the Court Leader website. So until next month, I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for watching. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on the NACOM website, on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nacomnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader's website, and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily reflect the position of the National Association for Court Management.